Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 and the last time the chapter 8 the sermon was titled man or Emmanuel again that was my attempt to be witty Emmanuel or Emmanuel means God is with us and God was always trying to tell his people you know are you going to follow the institutions of men and women the people secular humanists or are you going to follow me and even as Christians, we have to resist that urge to go along to get along to whatever we see on the major news networks that we have to follow. They set an agenda, we jump to it. That's actually not Christ what Christianity is all about. It wasn't what the believers were supposed to be about back in those days. We're supposed to set a better tone, a godly tone of what society should look like and not let the secular humanist dictate it to us. So sometimes we have to extricate ourselves from too much news too much tv because it does run into it runs afoul of the word of god uh this morning the sermon is titled a child is born all right this is where we are in isaiah chapter 9 and apropos because we are in the christmas season and this is read it's on postcards <laughs> it's sung in songs but do we really know what it means you know we have to be understanding God's truths, especially at a time where you know, maybe most of the world doesn't think about God, doesn't think about Jesus, but they're kind of forced at this part of the year to at least consider it. So we have to look at it, we have to understand it, and it's really a good idea as we share our faith. We're going to look at this in five parts, and um, this is at a time where very interestingly enough, when you look at the context, this was at a time where Israel, where the Israelites, both the northern and southern kingdom, were going through great difficulty, brought on by themselves, by the way, because of sin and, again, rebelling against God. It's something about men and women. We, we can be such prideful beasts where we get to a point where we're accomplished, we learn skills, we become educated, and all of a sudden we start drifting away from God and his truths. It's this pride that builds us up in us. So, again, I see it in American culture, but it certainly happened back then. We're talking some 2,700 years ago. And God intersperses this message of his Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming into the world to give them hope in a very dark and tumultuous time. So let's jump in to Isaiah 9, starting with verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, now this is carried over from 8. Chapter delineations were not put into the Bible until about three or four hundred years after, you know, it was they, books were written, um, third or fourth century A.D. But chapter nine it says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Sometimes Hebrew idioms are a little or word uh, positions are a little difficult to kind of put together but an alternate translation to help you with this is in the hebrew is in the latter time he has brought honor on the way of the sea 
okay? And it's, of course, in the form of Jesus, and I'll come back to that. In Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. So one out of five is this is the prophecy of the hope of the coming Messiah's ministry. Now, we're going to be <laughs> not necessarily all over the map, although we'll be there too, but we're going to be all, all over the timeline. And that's important to understand. And if you're new to the Bible, there's something you have to get used to because where context is um, the mid 8th century BC, that's where this is all taking place. But uh, the, pr the prophecies speak about things that happen um, basically at the turn of the century between the uh, 7th and 8th century. So we're moving more towards us. Then the prophecy moves to the time of Christ, which is the 1st century. Then it moves to things that we can make application in our culture, but then it moves to the future millennium. So not millennial, millennium, very big difference. Millennium, meaning the thousand-year period uh, that Christ reigns, he's on the throne, it's a righteous rule, the best politician that ever existed because he's the son of God and he's fair and he's just, and we'll look at that. So this is a little bit of context of where we are, um, but you, basically if we can put up the map... So in the time that this was written, here you have the Sea of Galilee, which was also the Sea of Gennesaret, uh, which was also the Sea of Tiberias. And the body of water never, never moved. It literally has the surface area of the size of Middlesex County. So it wasn't a little lake. It wasn't a little pond. It was a big body of water that was subject to tumultuous uh, waves and behaviors. And we see this in the time of Christ when he's on the sea, uh, based on the wind patterns and pressure systems, etc. So here's the Sea of Galilee in the first century. But going back to Isaiah's time, you had Naphtali and you had Zebulun, which was over here, and they mostly encompassed the Sea of Galilee. Over here is Syria. Over here, if you remember from the last time, is the Assyrian Empire. And down here are the Babylonians. Okay, much of this today is modern-day Israel. Um, you have Jordan over here, Syria is still Syria, uh, Lebanon is over here. So I'm just kind of just getting you all up to speed. Now, around this sea, which is amazing, is towns in the time of Christ, which we know as Magdala, which we know as Capernaum, which we know as Bethsaida. Okay? So I'm kind of putting all this together for you. Now, in the time of Isaiah, what was happening? Well, unfortunately these towns, which was the northern part of Israel, was under siege from not Syria, but Assyria. This was mostly a wasteland. It was hard to cross. So if you wanted to get to the attack and war to the people by the Mediterranean, you'd have to kind of make an arc. Go through Syria, which they did, and then the northern kingdom. And the first place mostly that they touched base was these two towns. That's why they're mentioned. So it was a dismal time for the uh, northern Israelites. Now, the, the far century, again, is what's the excitement? What's the honor that they would receive by the sea? 
a few hundred years later was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming in the flesh in that area and doing these incredible miracles and feedings and healings. So he was telling his people, listen, it's tough right now, but there's good news in the future. And folks, sometimes we have to deal with that, don't we? Even as believers. Sometimes we're going through a time that's very difficult. And, you know, when you're in prayer and you're in the Word, you say, gee, I can, I can literally claim that for myself. I'm going through a very tough time, but I know that God has not forsaken me. He's not abandoned me, you know, and I know he hears me. I know he sees my cries, and I know that, that he loves me, right? So when you look at believers, God doesn't play favorites. He has the same MO, so to speak, from the beginning to the end when he deals with his people. So verse 1 is the gloom which was carried over from chapter 8. It was gloomy because of the invasions. It was gloomy because of war. War is always depressing. You know, it's, it's an awful thing to deal with war and the, and the consequences of it. But let's, if I could, go to um, Matthew 4, starting with verse 13 in the New Testament. Matthew, the disciple, the apostle, uh, references these this scripture right as a, a fulfillment of scripture in the first century in verse 13 it says and leaving nazareth he jesus came and dwelt in capernaum which is by the sea in the regions of zebulun and naphtali that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by isaiah the, isaiah the prophet saying the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali the way of the sea beyond the jordan Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? And this is an amazing thing because that the Jews and the Gentiles were fighting. They were killing each other at the time of Isaiah. By the first century, you know, the Roman Empire was a pagan, wicked empire. But one good thing that they did was, after they were done conquering, there was a peace. And what happened was people would come together, and Jesus Christ came at that perfect time to bring, well, he, he, had a, he came to die for our sins, but he also brought Jews and Gentiles together and turned this Jewish Messiah, turned this um, Jewish believers and these Gentiles into what we know today as the church. Beautiful stuff. So... Back in Isaiah's day, they're killing each other. They couldn't imagine sitting down with the Gentiles, especially the ones that were invading them. But Jesus brought peace. And he brought people together. That's what he does. And I've got to tell you something, folks. I'll bring that to today. We hear a lot about social justice and all these kind of things. You know what the answer is? The gospel. Look around in this church. You know what I'm saying? This is what Jesus does. Jesus has a big umbrella. Everyone can fit under that umbrella. The more you focus on Christ and the gospel and you spread it, the more people that maybe didn't like each other or feared each other will come together and break bread. That's pretty impressive, if you ask me. <laughs> but the, you know, our culture is so poised against anything that has to do with Jesus. They don't understand. They don't get it. They don't know what's good for them. And you see these dark light metaphors. Darkness meaning spiritual darkness, meaning if you don't know God, you're in darkness. But light meaning of course, knowing light. God is light. You know, the first thing he said is, let there be light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Basically, if you emanate me from within. Verses 3 through 5. Now, when you look at the prophecies, um, some 
have some obscure interpretations. Uh, others, they look at it and we can kind of come to a conclusion based on Scripture interpreting Scripture. But, you know, a lot, of, a lot see the millennial reign of Christ, our future. Others see the relief, you know, when we talk about dividing the spoil and the harvest and all those things. Um, they see Assyria neutralized and everything's great, but everything wasn't great. So that's not a really good application if you know your history. If you look carefully, it says according to or similar to. There's a, a comparison made. So this is to me is more of a spiritual comparison. A, the harvest. He speaks about the harvest here in these verses. Jesus spoke openly about when souls would get saved. It was like a harvest. When you'd go out into your field and the wheat was ready or the, whatever you were planting and you're just so happy, you would just scoop everything up and bring it into the storehouse. Well, Jesus used that metaphor to explain people getting saved as a harvest, as a bumper crop. Um, also, a metaphor to winning in battle. And again, spiritually, what did Jesus say about Satan who holds people in bondage today? You read the news, you look at the crazy things that are happening in our culture. Satan is, he is like pulling out all the stops. He is the leader of the rebellious angels and he has a lot of power. And if you don't know God, you are under, you, 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 you're in one camp or the other, unfortunately. But what did Jesus say? He goes, when the strong man is bound, Satan, the most powerful of the rebellious angels, then you can plunder his goods. You could raid his home. You could take what he has. And this was a picture of, amazingly, is this spiritual war. Jesus Christ died for our sins. So Satan holding people in bondage to their sin, now there was a way out, the cross trusting in Christ, right, for the propitiation of our sins. Um, this broken yoke he speaks about, this burden, again, it's the sin burden, the sin burden. You know, if you've been a Christian for more than maybe a year or a few years, you look back and you go, wow, I remember when I was burdened by that. And we don't say it in an arrogant way because other people still are, but we say, well, look, at, look what God did for me. This is amazing. This 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 burden has been broken or he also he speaks about breaking the staff of the oppressor again satan's grip on us satan's grip on us i say this a lot if those who mock or think it's funny or think that there's no satan or devil are unwittingly being actually controlled by him there's the irony there because he controls this this fallen world and god is going to change that at some point he's going to fully redeem the physical creation but there's a reference here to midian now, this is why I say that it's not, and again, you, you, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is why I say that for those who say, well, this is, happened after the Assyrians were wiped out and everything was great. No, no, Midian, if you look at Gideon and the Midianites in Judges, I believe, chapter 7, there was 135,000 enemy troops. And Gideon's band of men was whittled down to 300. That's, that's less than like a half a percent. A difference and nobody would win in a battle with that that disproportionate but god did that on purpose because he was going to gain the victory so again we go to a um a spiritual application here and folks there's spiritual victories that are available to you this morning and me you know i mean we i tell you what when you lead somebody to christ you can rejoice in in the harvest because you were part of that you know that's an incredible thing or when something is coming against you, something so brutal and oppressive, and it turns around and you know you didn't do that, you can claim that spiritual victory. 
you know, that God delivered you like he did Gideon and against the Midianites with only 300 against 135,000. Uh, continuing on, verse 6. This is great. I love this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So two out of five is the prophecy of the Messiah's coming. And I would say that within this, these two verses are a mixture of his first coming, which happened, and his second coming, which is yet to come. And we have to kind of parse that. So the prophecy of the Messiah and this also one of the greatest prophecies for his deity, that he was fully God. Well, everybody knows, even the historical writers write about Jesus. We know that somebody named Jesus did exist, did come from the line of Judah. But there are many who scoff at the, at the point or the truth that he's God. So let's look at this. A, a child is born. Now that's our perspective. God was signaling to his observant believers that child is going to be born. So the Messiah is going to come, but he's going to come in the form of a person and from a child. Right? And this is important because man was created, men and women, and through them they sent us, plunged us into these depths of sin. So it's, just, it's almost like when you look at a legal manual. This is the way it had to be. So not only did Jesus have to die for our sins, but he had to come in the form of a man, the guy who messed everything up in the first place. You know, he had to come and clean up Adam's mess, so to speak. So there's a lot of legalities here. There's a lot of God just, God just can't, I mean, he can do anything and wave his magic wand, but if he does things without justice and the proper way, then what kind of God do we follow? So this is the way it had to be. A child is born. A son is given. Okay, so a child is born from our perspective. From God's perspective, John 3.16, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God had skin in the game. He gave a part of himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to the world to die for our sins. Who does that? <laughs> Who does that? You know, I mean, we, 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 we demand an apology, right, in our culture. We demand some type of, you know, payment. And you'll pay for this. God says, yeah, you've offended me, all of you, but this is, I'm going to do this for you. So a son is given from God's perspective. And you know what's amazing? It's, it's not only hinted at, but outright stated. And I found six or seven scriptures in the Old Testament that speak about God's son. Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Proverbs 30. It's in there. It's in there. God is sometimes subtle to his people. And then when the time comes, it all starts to come together like a puzzle. The government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, he'll be the king. We read a lot of scriptures about the Lord Jesus returning and ruling from Jerusalem, the ultimate king. Praise God. <laughs> you know, we, every election cycle we go through, you know, I'm like, all right, <laughs> here we go again. Uh, two imperfect people, um, what's wrong with this candidate, what's wrong with that candidate, you know, 
Do we, do we, are we happy with the devil we know or the devil we don't know? You know what I'm saying? And it's just, you, you can tell how I feel about politics, can't you? <laughs> so, but Jesus is going to be the king. Um, you, no one will ever be able to look at him and say there's a scandal or he didn't do that right or that wasn't fair. I'm looking forward to that day. Um, I'm tired of these, the two parties that kind of hold us in bondage in this country. But uh, if you look at this, here's the interesting thing, is that <laughs> the believers in the first century, well, many of them followed him, but the ones that didn't were annoyed because they, you know, it's amazing how we can take God's will and all this claim it stuff, claim the things that we like, but discard the things that we don't like out of God's word, you know? It's God's will. We have to take what we perceive as the good and we perceive as not so great. But in the first century, Jesus didn't come with the government on his shoulder. That's a future occurrence. So many hated him, almost wanted to abuse him because he did not come in the way that they wanted him to come. It was a stumbling block for, that, for them. And that's amazing. Again, how even today we can... That's why we got to read... Calvary Chapel believes in going through the whole book i tell you something, next chapter is not going to be fun for me to teach. It's, it's, very, it's, a, little, it's a little sad, and, and I'm really going to have to pray through it. But I don't skip chapters. We don't skip books. We don't skip cha- chapters here. And I always say, when Song of Solomon comes up, I'm going to make Pastor Paul teach that one. I'm not touching that book. So, so those of you who know the book know what I'm talking about. Uh, so anyway, let's continue on. His names or, or his characteristics which won't be fully realized until his second coming. So the one is wonderful. i got to be honest with you. When things go wrong, I'm sarcastic, and I'm like, wonderful. And sometimes that's how we look at that word. How many things, and there's good things that we deal with, but wonderful is awe-inspiring. It's amazing. It's great. It's wonderful. You don't stumble into wonderful every day unless you know the Lord. That relationship is wonderful. You know, um, It didn't say that, that the Son of God was going to come in mediocrity, mediocre. No, that stinks. He's going to be wonderful. I mean, even the, the people that were, even his own disciples, he's raising the dead. Who does that? Person's blind, person's lame, get up and walk. Can't you see his leg is withered? You know, he's got that muscle atrophy. The guy just gets up and his body just goes back to, how does that happen? Guy's got leprosy, he touches face, and it's smooth as a baby's bottom. I mean, only a wonderful God could do things like that. And when you know Jesus Christ, you have aspects of your life that become wonderful. Another name or characteristic is counselor. Counselor. Listen, today a lot of people have institutions or professionals they go to for wisdom. You know who we always have? Our counselor. We have God's Word. You know, a lot of Christians I know, and I do the same thing. You know, you go through a, a dark time and you either read the Psalms or you read, uh, you know, uh, the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and it's like, oh, it's so refreshing. It's going to be okay. You know, counselor. You got the Holy Spirit that counsels, up you, counsels us. You don't, have, you don't necessarily have to have all these professionals on speed dial. You have the Lord. Counselor. Mighty God. Well, this is a tough one for the ones that even in so-called Christian sects, I would say pseudo-Christianity, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Listen, before he was even brought into this world, he claimed to be God. El Gibor is the word for mighty God. El meaning God, Gibor meaning the mighty one, the mighty God. 
This wasn't the paltry God or the lesser God. And you hear, yes, Jesus was a lesser God. Okay, well, what does Isaiah 9, 6 say? He was the mighty God, the one who came into the world. No question that Messiah would be deity, everlasting Father. can also be translated eternal source. Um, and I think the key here is the, the eternality part of Jesus' characteristics, right? Micah 5.2, another Old Testament prophecy that says that, he, again, before he even comes to the earth, his days will be from everlasting, from eternity. Jesus is the eternal one. And that's what we sometimes struggle with. Or people who don't know the Bible in its totality, they struggle with the fact that, well, he was born in a manger. He was born in a feeding trout. Okay, but he always was. That's his, that was his mode to come here. Prince of Peace. Now this is uh, literally and temporally was a future fulfillment. He is the Prince of Peace. He will be the king. He will be the perfect politician. And everybody is going to be in peace. There's not going to be any wars while he's ruling. We covered that. That's a nice thing. I went through all the conflicts and skirmishes and wars and ethnic cleansings that are going on around the globe as we speak. Um, That's not going to happen anymore. Now, even though there's a a full temporal fulfillment in the second coming, he is the Prince of Peace today, right? There's, um, I don't, can't, the name escapes me, but, and I've quoted him from this pulpit, uh, son of Hamas. He was a terrorist, uh, admitted terrorist. (laughs) I love it when someone gives their testimony. Yeah, I was a terrorist. Uh, And then I, he found, he came upon a Bible, he started reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and he found love your enemies, and he starts reading. The guy gets saved, he, and he leaves his life of, of horror. And now they're after him, and he needs security. <laughs> but, but that's an amazing thing when you look at the prince of peace. Love your neighbor. Esteem others more than yourself. In America, everybody's suing everybody. I have my rights. Everybody's taking it. Man, if you, I was in the court system. I mean, they are backlogged. And people don't get along, you know. There's, there's family court filled, civil court filled, criminal court filled. That's the society we live in. The Bible says that you may have to lay down your rights sometime to love another person. So you can choose not to go that route um, because we answer to a higher authority. Again, in our culture, everybody's pitted against each other. You tell somebody no once as an employer or, or, you know, and and right away there's a lawsuit. And this is what happens. Verse 7 um, again, his, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David, remember David, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice, judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So once Christ comes back and takes the reins again, you know, his return, it'll be contiguous to eternity. It'll be, once that happens, set the clock because we're going to go into the millennium and then into eternity. Um, 2 Samuel 7, we see the promise of the Messiah sitting on the throne of David uh, and ruling forever. Now, there's a little issue for those of you who know the Bible really well, but what about (laughs) Josiah? King Josiah was the last great king of the southern kingdom. Unfortunately, his kids were no good, (laughs) but he was a great guy. And his kids messed everything up, and you know the Babylonians came and well, they actually conquered in 586. They started the siege in the early 6 605. Uh, but what happened is 
they forfeited the throne in Jerusalem, unfortunately, because of their wickedness. When Jesus comes, five centuries later, he comes to pick it up again. Okay, he is the eternal king. In the second, uh, second coming, we'll see this more visually. We'll see him actually sitting on the throne and ruling. So he's, Jesus is awesome. Again, Adam messed everything up through sin. The second Adam, or the last Adam, Jesus, comes to fix it. The kings of Judah throw the line of Judah into a, a, a firestorm and, and uh, you know, of expatriation and wars. Jesus comes to pick it up again. Can we dust off that throne? All right, I'm ready. Let's do this. You know, so he comes to fulfill that prophecy. Are there breaks? Yes. Are there delays? Are there pauses? Yes. But when he takes that throne again, we're going to all rejoice. And he speaks, speaks about peace and justice. And that's refreshing because everybody wants peace and everybody wants justice. You know what I'm saying? And unfortunately, there's just so many inconsistencies in our culture that we don't see that. But we're going to see that. Verse 8, continuing on. The Lord, now we're, we're changing venues here. <laughs> the landscape is changing. We're going back to the 8th century B.C. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. And the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin, who was the, uh, the king of, of uh, Syria at the time, against him and spur his enemies on. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So three out of five is this Horrible political situation in the northern kingdom because of pride and stubbornness of God's own people. He warned them, you got to repent. You can't continue doing it this way. And what they did was they responded to God with arrogance. So let the Assyrians come and cut down our sycamores. We'll put cedars up. Hey, let them knock the bricks down. We'll put stones up. Real arrogant. God is speaking through his prophet and they're not listening to him. You ever meet somebody who's just really arrogant? Their whole demeanor is a turnoff. Unfortunately, God's people were, were blinded by this arrogance and this pride. Um, now, he speaks about the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. The word actually for Syrians is in the Hebrew is Aram, which does speak about the Arameans and the Syrian people, but there was a relationship between Syria and Assyria. And it's kind of weird, you know, in some of these, and you see it in the Middle East now, cousins literally from different lines, brothers, they're killing each other. It was no different back then. So the Syrians had a line of people, but they had a relationship, a blood relationship with the Assyrians. Interestingly enough, the Assyrians, again, they're fighting with each other. The Assyrians in the southern kingdom, the Babylonians, which came out of the Assyrian kingdom, rise up to kill the Assyrians. It's just so bizarre. But I said last Sunday, man is a bloodthirsty creature. You give a man or a woman power, and boy, watch out, because it, it, it's like a drug. They get intoxicated on it. So here's this situation. So it says Syrians, but it actually could be translated technically Assyrians. Okay? 
I'm just going to leave you with a, <laughs> with a little interesting note here. And, and I feel like I can't gloss over it. Those of you might know um, a guy who wrote a lot of books, made millions. His name is uh, Jonathan Kahn. And if I say the name of the one book, The Harbinger, you might, oh, I might have read that book. He takes this scripture, Isaiah 9:10, and he makes a parallel to the United States. Here's the prophecy. I mean, here's the problem with some of these guys who do this. The Da Vinci Code did the same thing. They put these crazy assertions in there. Now, in the Da Vinci Code, the, the, the design was to harm Christianity. And I actually met Christians that were fearful. I'm like, look at this book. Why don't you do some... Re this is ridiculous. And, you know, even the Council of Nicaea, uh, the voting, it was a close vote. And we actually found that in the Council of Nicaea, 218 bishops voted... Yeah, of course Jesus is God. It's all over the scripture. Two bishops were heretical. That's really not a close vote, 218 to 2. But so he makes a lot of poor assertions, does it in a novel form. And then what these guys do is when they're called on it, they go, oh, it's a novel. <laughs> it's fiction. But then they want to be considered like a prophet. So, so Jonathan Kahn talks about these harbingers in the United States and 9-11 was part of this judgment of this prophecy. Honestly, it's not good. It's, it's not real. It's not accurate. Um, he, he's touted as a, as a pro, modern-day prophet, but then when he's pressed about his inaccuracies, because the, the harbingers, many of these harbingers, the majority of them actually reverse themselves. He does, it's the stock market. He had all these signs, and, and then they reverse themselves within a few years. So I don't know. I don't, you know, the Berean call does a great job in criticizing some of his, his works. And then when you press him on interviews, he goes, oh, it's a novel. Yeah, but then why are you being touted as a prophet? It's this whole novel uh, prophet conundrum, okay? To me, it would be like Isaiah taking God's prophecy, right? Can you see Isaiah doing this? He takes the prophecy, he writes it, and he goes, you know what? If I made a novel out of this, I could make a fortune, and then he makes copies of the, the scroll and he starts sending them out and all of a sudden Isaiah is a rich man. You know what I'm saying? Obviously he didn't do that. So just some of these books that are sold in Christian bookstores, do your homework. Because you know what we're doing in the Christian community and it really bothers me? Undiscerning Christians are making millionaires out of heretics. That's just how I feel. But it wouldn't have been no different back in these days. You know, the ones that were doing well in these decadent times were the false prophets, the false leaders, the liars, the, the counsels to the king that wanted a good position and told the king whatever they wanted to hear, which delayed the repentance process. So let's continue in this in verse 12b. He says this a few times in chapters 9 and 10. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, if you look at this, you know, his, God's hand, figuratively, God is spirit, God is light, God is love, right? That's what the Bible tells us. You know, the Bible speaks about God covering us like a, a hen covers her chicks. Obviously, God's not a bird. But the, these are sometimes anthropomorphisms. These are sometimes, um, you know, just euphemistic. Uh, so just take it for what it is. But when God puts his hand out towards us, the image that's supposed to be conjured is a parent to a child. And a parent can put out their hand for stroking, for caressing, for comforting, or they can put their hand out for discipline. What kind of child were you? <laughs> what 
What kind of child of God are we? And folks, we have to learn the hard way sometimes. Whether it was the Israelites or us today, I mean, there's times that I had to learn some hard lessons. There were times that God's hand was disciplining on me, but I deserved it, and I changed for it. And then there were times that I would, and we pick our terms. How are we going to come to God? Do we want to come in arrogance? Do we want to come in rebellion? Or do we want to come as a child to a parent? You know, he's completely fair. He's completely fair. And even in the midst of all these trials and wars, he still had these many blessings reserved for Israel that came to pass a few centuries later and also uh, will come to pass in our future. 13. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel. Palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed, not by God, but by this bad leadership. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Four out of five. God continues to allow this godless society to kind of run off the rails, right? The train is running out of track by their, by their choice. But he's also merciful. So let's talk about what God has done so far to bless the children of Israel. He's given them prophets, right? We know that in the scripture. He's given them prophetesses, male and female prophets. He gave them trials to try to humble them. That didn't work. He gave them blessings. Then he would go trial, blessing, trial, blessing. Really trying to get them to stop their bad behavior. You know, it's called tough love. <laughs> and a lot of parents today take issue with some of the things they read because we've become a society where our kids are our friends and they're our equals and they demand things and we do it. And I'm making an overgeneralization here, but that's just not, that's not good parenting. Um, he gave them object lessons. We went through this. Now what's he doing? The manipulative, the charismatic, the smooth leaders, he takes them out. That's mercy. Oh, that's horrible. How could that? No, that's mercy. And you know, you see politicians, Hollywood people, they spout off about something and there's skeletons in their own closet and they're really good at hiding it. Really good. Come look over here. Look at the duck, you know, whack, 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 and you don't see what's going on behind me. You know what I'm saying? And, and it was no different back then. So what did God do? He took out the, the lying prophet. He took out the, the lying leader. And again, that was done out of mercy. The corrupt elders gave very poor secular counsel. The corrupt prophets gave very poor and damning spiritual counsel. It was false spiritual counsel. And it was a very stubborn culture. But again, they weren't heeding his warning. And again, where are we as a culture? I'll just speak for myself. You ever do something, even as a believer, and you know that like, this is the right thing? God is, and you, you don't want to do it. And you, you, know, you suffer for bad decisions, and then you, you get upset with the Lord. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, listen, this is the way it is. God promises blessings. He promises good counsel. He promises all these things, but he also gave us free will, and it's our choice. Last few verses, 18. For wickedness, again, um, a metaphor, wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. 
Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. The fire was the evil, the fire was the Assyrians. No man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Five out of five. Again, this wickedness was a consuming fire. And we see it in our own culture. We see the, just the, the gloom sometimes in our own nation, things that are happening. It's this sin, this wickedness. It's becoming like a fire. And you know, when I watch TV and I see the, especially the California wildfires, and they find out that like, I don't know, it was a, a poor campfire or a cigarette or something, these um, fires start really small and they become out of control and they demolish hundreds of acres of land and homes. And that's the way sin is as well. Now in verses 19 through 21, not a pretty picture, brother is against brother, you know, parent against child. Um, They're stealing, but they're not satisfied. They get, the politicians were, and we're going to cover this next chapter, they they made laws that insulated themselves, and the elites would have so much and oppress the people who had very little. And again, they weren't satisfied. It wasn't enough. At, at worst case, if you look at this literally, maybe they re, re, uh, resorted to cannibalism. You know, um, you look at some uh, this you know uh, translations in the Hebrew. It's a little harsh. Like what were these people doing, even to themselves? But you know what I can tell you is that sin annihilates even the closest biological ties. Within own families, sin destroys. There, there you have it. You know, there's an expression, you would sell your own mother if the price was right. And we all know what that means. A person that's just so sold out to material possessions, money, um, parents abandoning, selling their children for pleasure, comfort, inanimate objects, uh, drugs, no conscience. Human relations are the most precious thing that God gave us, a relationship, right? And sin destroys that. The person who finds themselves looking back at their life and thinking, wow, all these, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of alone, I'm not really, I'm kind of used to it, but look at all the relationships I burned over the years. And why? There's some type of sin issue there. You know what I'm saying? So we can look at this and say, okay, the Assyrians aren't coming to attack us, but shame on us if we're not taking the applications and, and um, taking them for our own lives. So when I'm asked why God judges, my question is, does he have a choice? You know, when God was formulating the church, when he started this new organization called the church, within the first century, the Corinthian church was out of control. And God had to deal with the people there. They were, they were factions. They were devising schemes to harm each other. You know? And even today, we see factions and divisions and, and churches closing over sinful uh, situations where people are, are getting pockets and they're politicking against each other. They're fighting. And before you know it, there's nobody left in the church or it has to close down. And it's really sad. But you know what? Christ brings unity to help heal. And that's what we need to understand. Right? I was watching a video with John MacArthur speaking about social issues. And he basically said, this is where the country is headed. He goes, but we have to keep focusing on the gospel. 
We have to keep focusing on the unity. We have to keep focusing on bringing people into the kingdom of heaven. And that has to be our driving force. And when we do that, if we're all doing that in our own communities, things will change. Reading about the the revivals like 100 years ago where bars were closing down. People weren't going to get drunk anymore. You know, prostitution houses were going out of business. That's the way to do it. Sometimes as Christians, we want to sit back and we want to get angry, we want to point fingers, we want to do this and that. But if we just make a positive impact on people, you start to see the growth like flowers. Things start to change. The briars and the thorns become beautiful roses, you know, a beautiful work of art. The good news in all this is that this was a bad situation for a time, but it wasn't always going to be like that forever. And folks, if you've come in here with a burden, it isn't going to be like that forever. Understand that. You are the Lord's. You know, there may be a process, maybe of discipline, a process of refining, and his, his arm is outstretched. Will we take his hand as a child to a parent or we can continue to rebel and not get the message and buck against him. Some of you this morning are having your own Naphtali and Zebulun experience. But I want to encourage you, it isn't going to be like that forever. Keep in mind, a child was born, a son was given to us. Amazing. So the Israelites got to look to the future for this event. We get to look back at history to see that event. Right? Right? It's so powerful. The Bible says he died for the sins of the past, present, future. How does he do that? Wherever you are on the timeline, the linear timeline, this is for you. A lot comes with that. Peace, good counsel, love. A relationship with the living God. Promises an abundant life. So some Christians are going through a dry patch, but I would encourage you to turn to him today. I'm thinking about it. Eventually, I'm going to rededicate my life. Let's just do it today. Right? Go from those dry places to an oasis of restoration in a relationship with Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road, in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.